Paul McLaughlin and McLaughlin at work. The book, The Talent Masters. The author, to my right, Bill Connerty. Bill, nice to have you with us. Great to be with you, Paul. Um, it is, I don't want to sound fatuous, but you are, uh, you label yourself as the former senior vice president of General Electric, but in many circles, you're almost an icon. I think that's fair to say. Well, more I'm for looking you for than me. No, I'm not, <laughs> let's not get off on the wrong foot here. I'm looking for an affirmation of that. But it, it, what you've done with GE, and I'll let you explain that because you would do it better sure. than I. Sure. Uh, but what you have done to introduce the background to the talent masters is um, is as important as this book. Why smart leaders put people before numbers. Let's get to that, but let's start with um, when the music started, when the dance started, and how Bill Connerty came to be what you frankly have become. Well, thank you. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Uh, as you mentioned, I did spend the first 40 working years of my life with GE, so uh, that's where most of my thinking comes from, although in the past three years I've been out with uh, a number of private equity companies and also consulting. Uh, with some major Fortune 50, Fortune 100 companies like Procter & Gamble and Dell and Maersk and LG Electronics and Goodyear. And so I'm still having fun. I'm still, many of whom are mentioned in the book. Many of whom are mentioned in the book. Mm -hmm. and, and they're mentioned in the book because I'm close to them. I'm intimate with them. I know what they're doing. I know what they're trying to do. Uh, and I believe they're all adapting the, the principles of talent mastery that we talk about in the mm -hmm. book. Uh, some will, some will get there. Some may not. Right. And accidents uh, happen. Accidents for, happen for good and for bad. Yeah, absolutely correct. Absolutely. Correct. And and one of those accidents that you address, and we can get into that, um, is the issue of succession. Accidents can cause reasons for succession to be necessary. Right. And um, almost, perhaps by definition. The problem that arises that usually isn't met is when it is by accident right. that you, you right. have the whole created. Right. Um, Jack Welsh obviously was an important part of allowing, uh, not only to be a guide, but as a yes. leader. Yes. Um, and creating this, uh, I won't call it a template, but Crotonville and everything that it became, uh, became a study. Um, let's jump from 19, uh, when did you join the company? I joined in 67. You joined in 67, but you actually went through the training program, if you will, I in did. 80. I did. In 80. Well, I went through a training program in 67 when okay. I started with the company. Right. And that was a three-year, six, six-month rotational assignment program. Right. And that was in operations. So I was basically in manufacturing and operations at the time. And then I moved cross-functionally into human resources. Okay. Then I moved back into operations. I ran a uh, diesel engine locomotive plant in Grove City, Pennsylvania for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then I moved back into HR in probably 1980 mm -hmm. and spent the rest of my career in the human resource field. Book is out in this period here, November of... 2010. Um, you joined in 67. You are you and I of are of an age. How has talent changed? Well, I think talent. Some things have stayed the same, and and technology has certainly changed talent from a from a perspective of people who can embrace change. First of all, 
and, and you're still talking. <laughs> and you're, people are still paying you for your advice. <laughs> right, right, and right, this is right. uh, for some reason. No, and good and, cause. and and I do think that embracing change and technology is a big piece of that change mm -hmm. is is what people really have to do to succeed in this kind of an environment. So, uh, you know, while I didn't grow up in a you know a real high technology world, so to speak. Uh, as the world changed, as General Electric became more savvy in, in that regard, both operationally and human resource-wise, uh, we, we had to embrace it and we had to get out in front of it. And we were a company that uh, never was satisfied with the status quo. We were always... And you say we were a company. Who, who's the we, who's the company? Yeah, I guess I, I, I shortened the we up pretty quickly there. <laughs> I. I when I think of GE, I think of, uh, for the most part, in the last uh, 20, 30 years, Jack Welch, mm -hmm. Jeff Ml mm -hmm. as the as the two leaders. I I served Jack for eight years as the uh, SVP of HR for the for the corporation, and then Jeff for for the next six. So, mm -hmm. uh, has it been six years? Uh, no, well, nine years now. For Jeff, it? it was six with me alone. Okay. It's closer to ten. Wow. Now, yeah. which which people do find hard to believe. Right. Most people think because Jack was such an icon or a legend that he just left a few years ago. Right. And obviously his appearances on CNBC and Fox and other shows uh, keep him relevant. Right. Keep keep him on the front. And, and perhaps even um, I believe I have the, the uh, Mr. Nardelli. Yes. And uh, yes. the fellow who went on to 3M. Jim McNerney. Jim McNerney. Both of those happened shortly after. Yes, they Jeff did. came in, and so that was, and yes. Home Depot has gone through its. Yes, they've had their yeah, issues. And now too. we've yeah. had the. And now we got another GE guy, Frank Blake, right. is running Home Depot. Okay. So, uh, so it's kind of an all in the family program. Right. Here. So that was the we. You were answering the yeah, we. Yeah, the, 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 the we so. is, is kind of GE and the, and the CEOs that I've worked mm -hmm. most closely mm -hmm. with. And, and I guess, you know, I would say, Paul, and I, I'm blessed because I was with a company that was obsessed with people just obsessed with people and people development. And it was a company because we had so many different businesses, because the portfolio of businesses was so diverse, we really needed to right. develop our own leaders. Uh -huh. So, you know, we felt that leaders could be developed within the company. They could be broadened by running one business and moving to another, a different, a totally different industry. I mean, you could move from the lighting business to the aircraft engines business to the energy business. And the common thread was uh, a set of values and a GE culture, which was a one-company culture that we all believed in. Mm -hmm. And we all believed that uh, if the company did well as a, uh, as in, in, in totality, that we'd all do well individually. And that's something that I got to credit a Jack Welch and a Jeff ML for keeping alive in a company like GE. So. When I talk about a principle of enlightened leadership, mm -hmm. starting with the CEO, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not talking about neon lights going on. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking about leaders who uh, who absolutely embrace change, embrace technology, but also embrace people and embrace talent, and believe that having the best world-class talent uh, is worth the time and energy and resources and dollars to put into it, to mm -hmm. commit to it. So that's kind of how we get on to the, to the talent mastery piece mm -hmm. of, uh, of saying, you know, there's, there's some principles that go along with being a talent master. Mm -hmm. 
the one that I started with is the enlightened leadership team starting with the CEO. I'm convinced that if the CEO, if the CEO isn't committed to talent development, succession planning, uh, HR uh, policies and procedures, then it's not going to happen. I mean, you can have an organization that feels like that's the right thing to do, but most organizations and the talent within the organization emulate their leaders. Right. So, so if the CEO isn't embracing those concepts, isn't walking the talk, it's really hard to, to move that uh, needle down the line. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to jump here, but I'm going to sure. jump because my time sure. is so sure. limited with sure. you. I could be here for hours talking to you about your book. Uh, a couple of observations. One is, um, one has always heard that, uh, for instance, in the financial services industry where you're where you're not making things. Right. right. That's one of its issues. Right. It doesn't make it. It makes bad right. loans. Yeah. But it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make locomotives. Yeah. But that the uh, your your talent pool um, goes, uh, arrives at work up in the elevator in the morning and goes down the elevator at night. That that there's something about, about that that is, they've been talking about that a long time. They're talking about people being most important. And yet, we know from the events of, of uh, some showing things better now, simply isn't true. So in, in terms of, of leadership's thought, thought process, and one of the things I, I find fascinating to talk to somebody like yourself is you've watched it for 40 years. Yeah. So you have been able to say to somebody coming into GE, here's the way we do it, but we can change. And if you don't like it, uh, tell us about it, and that, that's part of the process, of, yeah. if I understand it, yeah. sort of a Socratic yeah. method of change. Yeah. Um, how, is that, do the kids today, the young professionals, is, has the model changed? Does the, the way you teach, and I want to get into the yeah. issue, yeah. does Crotonville, has it changed with the times? Oh, yes. More women in it. Uh, it well, certainly. There's yeah. more women. And, and the other thing, the other big thing is globalization. Right. I mean, a typical class at Crotonville now of, say, 90 to 100 students in a entry-level executive course uh, is probably 30-plus percent women and probably closer to 40 percent global right. outside the I US. saw that statistic in the book. So, so if you're at Crotonville and you haven't changed your, uh, your shtick as far as how you're instructing or how you're teaching, and you're teaching in a U.S.-centric way, you're going to get blown. You're going to get blown off the stage. Right. And so, you know, that's changed dramatically. I, th I think your comments on the financial services side are valid. I mean, I think that if you look at most banks, most financial institutions, right. Uh, you know, they'll talk about people and getting great people, but you know, they really don't value talent development, in my opinion, right. or succession planning. And look. Let's just look at the evidence. Let's look at Citibank. Let's well, look at just, Bank just, of America. Let me just make the observation about Citibank because I was part of Solomon Brothers when it was yeah. uh, seven thousand. Yeah. And I think when when Citibank crested, including everything, it was about the size of GE. I think it was over oh, yeah. about three hundred and forty. Oh, no, I don't know how big GE is now, but I think that number is roughly in the ballpark. You're absolutely correct. And clear, it was chaos. Yeah. Because it was just unmanaged. GE was able to do something about that. Why do you say that financial services could not achieve intellectually with, with some very bright and well-intentioned sure. people? Sure. Why could they not achieve what you achieved at GE? Yeah. 
Well, you and your team. Sure. I, I'd say a couple of things. One, one, which is one of the principles of talent mastery that we talk about, is is having human resources, having the human resource function, be a bona fide business partner, not being a second rate or second tier or support operation. In most of the banks, most of the big financial institutions, including Citi, the HR. Uh, the HR leader reported to the chief administration officer. Absolutely. Not to the CEO. Yep. And that's not uncommon in that industry. Right. Now, you wouldn't get a GE senior HR leader from any of the businesses that I ran to ever go to that job because, and you could pay them all you want. You could double their pay. But if they're not going to report stock to the CEO. Are, the stock isn't, <laughs> worth, stock isn't worth quite what it was well, 10 GE's years ago. Well, <laughs> but, but the fact is, uh, have an HR as a legitimate business partner is a big, big deal. And I think Jack Welch is yeah. the guy that really, really brought that home. And, uh, you know, he, he now gives speeches where he'll go out to four or 5,000 people in the audience, and mainly CEOs, mm -hmm. and say, so I'd like a show of hands. Uh, how many of you in here value your HR leader as much as your CFO? And about 20 hands go up out of thousands. And he says that's where you got it all wrong. And he's got them right there. And he talks about mm -hmm. he talks about the analogy he uses is would you rather hang around with a, if you were running a ball team, if you were running a baseball team, would you rather hang around with a team accountant or the director of player personnel? You're talking about after the Mets just got rid of their general manager. <laughs> I know. And their manager for well, failure for four Well, I'm years. a Red Sox fan, so we're out of it. <laughs> it's but, okay. But, Wait till next year. Yeah, right. We right, love Boston. Right. But so, so I think, you know, uh, the relevance of HR right. in, in banks and in the financial community yeah. certainly isn't what it is at GE or what it is at Procter & Gamble or what it is at Hindustan Unilever, some of the companies that we talk about here. And, and, I, and I, when I hear you say that, I say to myself, you know, it maybe is a product a little bit of New York being such a financial services town, but we just don't, you, you don't grow up in New York thinking that HR has, and that's why yeah, I, I, no. it has the iconic, I mean, I had heard about Bill, uh, Bill Connolly long, long before the talent masters, but for the, for, but for the emphasis that was put yeah. and the role that you had assumed and how well it was, how necessary. But it wasn't necessary in some of the places that I was. I was like, how the hell did this happen? Why? Look, what, look, make, what makes you so Paul, special? Paul, you're right, you're on the money. I mean, the function, the HR function still has baggage. I mean, if you if you watch uh, uh, the show The Office, yeah, you know Toby <laughs> on The Office is what a lot of people think of as HR. You know the dope that talks about hiring and firing, brings in the policies right. and the like. And he certainly wouldn't be referred to as a talent master. No, no, Toby <laughs> wouldn't be in this book. But uh, but it's a great show, and 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 it's not terribly far off from where HR actually sits in, in a lot of companies now. Uh, those are companies that'll never be talent masters in, in my book, uh, but I think the HR function has come a long, long way in the last decade. Still has room to travel, mm -hmm. but uh, and and I have advice in this book as to how HR can can up their game within whatever company or business they're in. And one of the one of the pieces of advice is, and then I look right into that camera and tell people what and, what and HR people ought to do to well, take it to well, the top. I, you know, I mentioned a couple of things as to what HR people need to do. One is 
they need to uh, they need to understand the business. They need to understand the financial levers of the business in order to make an impact on HR. They need to, secondly, they need to work on business issues, not HR issues. HR issues by themselves might be fun to work on, but they're not very productive. So when you can affect the business's bottom line, you're going to get the CEO's attention. Another very big one that I noticed in HR people is that they have been magnificent problem identifiers and not so great at being a problem solver. I have never brought an issue to Jack Welch's attention, Jeff ML's attention, or any of the companies that I work with that I haven't said, here's an issue, here's what I'm doing about it, I don't want you to do a thing, Mr. CEO. Uh, just be aware that this is going on in case it comes to your attention and shoot it back to me because I'm going to try to nail this thing. So what HR leaders really need to do is be effective on taking issues off of the CEO's desk instead of dropping more issues on the pile of issues that the CEO already has on his desk. Well so put. Those are a few. Now. Coming out of a business school environment in which, uh, and I'm going to get to your private equity because I worked in private equity for a number of years and around it, um, I have heard it said that uh, people will contribute to capital that private equity needs uh, to go out and do their business. Um, uh, they, that you'll only do as well as your returns are to your investors and that it is a numbers-driven business. I, I would parallel talk that with business schools saying, if you can't quantify it, right. it doesn't count. Right, right, right. And quantify and count, I yeah. know. I'm yeah. mixing metaphors <laughs> there. But um, how, do you, how did you get from, a, from, and I'll throw in a last yeah. anecdote. I, I was talking to an author and said, is what you are talking about relevant to uh, international business, global business. Sure. And he said, well, I give talks around, around the world. And when I went to, they were in Estonia, of all people, of all places, filled the hall, and they wanted to know how GE was able to truly identify the bottom 10% to mm -hmm. take them out. Mm -hmm. That that's what they thought of with American management. Mm -hmm. That was one of the mm -hmm. things that has translated yes. Yes. out. Yes. How do they take the, yes. the that bottom rung out to make everybody yeah. more effective? Yeah. And then if you lay on top of that, the Gallup organization saying expose your talents, go to yeah. the top and make those better, don't worry about the bottom. Where did that reputation come from? Say, leaving aside Neutron Jack, but how did where did that reputation come from? That did GE, in spite of all your best efforts, yeah. still got that it was a numbers-driven organization, and the people at the bottom are out. Yeah. Well, it, it's not it's not quite as crass or macho as 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 it sounds. I mean, the fact of the matter is, when I joined GE in 1967 on a training program, I knew I was going to be rated. I knew I was going to be ranked within the group that I was in with. And if I, I was rated one to 10 while I was on that program for six different assignments. Uh, I knew damn well that if I didn't score at least a six or a seven, I was probably <laughs> headed for the door. So it was part of the value proposition. Okay. I mean, I knew, and, and, and for the next 37 years after that, I was rated. 
whether it be one to ten, one to five. Hey, Dad, how'd you do? A, B, C. I, I made it. <laughs> I got to the finish line. <laughs> yeah. I got. I crossed the finish line. Whether it's A, B, C, uh, whether it's twenty seventy ten, uh, thirty sixty ten, whatever. So, so people in GE know that right. that we're that was the deal. That we're that's the deal. That's the value proposition, uh, and and a lot of people uh, in mid careers wanted to join GE because of the concept of meritocracy, because they felt that where they were, they were being treated the same. And one of the things that, that I talk about in this book, and I talked about it when I was at GE, and one of my, my personal lessons learned after 40 years with GE and a few more on the outside world, is that I firmly believe that differentiation breeds meritocracy. And that sameness, or treating everyone the same, breeds mediocrity. And, and that's something that I think was an edge that we had at GE. Uh, I've seen other smart companies, P&G does something similar. Uh, we try not to be so mechanistic and formulaic with those percentages, whether it be 30, uh, 30 60, 10, uh, that we do dumb things with good people. Mm -hmm. But, but there's a, the emphasis is we want to make sure that we are really putting the spotlight on our very best and that, we, that we're recognizing and rewarding our very best. And simultaneously, we want to be looking at the less effectives and what we need to do to either make them more effective or to find them placement outside of GE. So, and, and the sooner you do that in a person's career, the better it is. I mean, we, used, we would call it false kindness when a manager would keep appraising uh, a less effective employee as he's fine, they're fine, they're fine. All of a sudden now that person's now 50 years old, got two or three kids in college, got major financial concerns, and all of a sudden we got a big layoff. And that individual gets affected and says, why me? Why me? I've had all these great appraisals and, well, they weren't really great appraisals, but they're okay appraisals and, you know, really you're, you're not that good. Right. That's not the time to find that out. The right. time to find that out is is right up front and find out whether you're a match for the culture of the business or that particular company and and face into it. And that and that's a lot of what we talk about in here about candor and trust in the system. And it's so easy to talk about candor and trust and so hard to do. Because it's so easy, Paul, for Trust me. me. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Trust me, Bill. I do. But I mean, it's it's so easy for me to give you an appraisal, and cite eight or ten significant strengths, and cite no development needs. And what how, you how nicely put what you though, de development needs. And that's so what we call them. What you we call them. We don't do we don't better. call them minuses. We don't call them negatives. And and I differentiate. Uh, we call it a development need versus a fatal flaw, because otherwise you'd say that's a gotcha. You're I've just, you've nailed me on something that you're probably going to fire me with or right. you'll use it on me later. Uh, that is a fatal flaw. That I mean, is. People will have fatal flaws. And that's a fatal will. flaw. So I say a development need is strictly a development need and doesn't become a fatal flaw unless you don't address it. So until the day I retired from GE, I had to cite one or two 
development needs, personal development needs that, that I needed to work on. And so every individual in GE is, is really, uh, culture-wise, forced to do that, to say, hey, here's a couple, I need to improve my listening skills, or I need to be a more effective presenter, or I, now work with me, boss. You know what, it, you know, do you agree? Are those my development needs or do I have other development needs? And what is our action plan over the next 12 months to address those? So what you're really doing is you're surfacing one or two. We never want more, more than one or two things. One or two things that you can work on to really enhance your game, to make you so much better than you are today. You got a laundry list of strengths. You got one or two things that could really make you explosive. And <laughs> one way or another, you know, either going to blow you up. Toxic. You, yeah, toxic <laughs> if you don't address it. Yeah. or or accelerate your career if you do. And and that's become a way of life in GE. That's the hardest part of of talent mastery. Getting that getting that candor and trust in the system that I can tell you right. that I've got a a development need and not have you use that as uh, as the reason to lay me off next week. Right. Um, I've heard it said and I should say what who I'm talking to. The book, Talent Masters, Why Smart Leaders Put People Before Numbers, Bill Connolly and Ram Karan. Uh, Ram Sharan. Ram Sharan, yeah. um, your co-author. Yes. Um, I've heard it said that, that companies, uh, that there's a certain lip sync associated with, uh, with leadership and that it, it, what, it, what it really comes down to is how you pay your people. After everything all is said and done, the people are driven by uh, what they're rewarded to do. And one could have said that that would have led to the financial services quagmire, is that they were, they were getting paid to do it, so why stop? Mm -hmm. how, did, how, did that, how did compensation fold into talent masters? Well, first of all, I don't believe that people are motivated solely by compensation. Financial I, services, that may be it, one of the problems. You know, you're, no, you're, I think you're absolutely right. And yet, we have a pretty big we had uh, and still do a pretty substantial financial services segment of yeah. GE. GE Capital. Yeah, GE Capital yeah. About half, was about half the company. Uh, and, and so, look, I, I don't think people work, uh, uh, work their tail off and embrace your values in that just to, you know, get through the day. I mean, I think they do want to be rewarded. Mm -hmm. They do want to be recognized. They do want to be compensated appropriately. Mm -hmm. But why people leave and why people stay in, in my 40-plus years has not been around money, per se. I mean, assuming that money's at least in the league, sure. you know, in, in the game somewhere, uh, it, it's because they don't find the work energizing and motivating and challenging, and they don't see a career path. They don't see the next move beyond this one. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I took... Early in my career, I took three lateral moves, which back in those days, uh, you didn't take a lateral move. That was, you know, you, you either had to, GE had a level system, like from 1 to 28. Okay. The CEO was a 28, and the guy sweeping the floor was probably a 1. But right. uh, when you, whenever you moved, you'd have to incrementally move a level or two. And if you were really banging, you'd go from a 5 to a 7 or an 8 to a 10. Right. And, and I made... Two or three lateral moves at eight. I made two or three lateral moves at ten. I broadened my game substantially so that the moves further down the road came bigger 
and easier. But it was unconventional to do that back right. then. And for me, it was just a matter of expanding my uh, my expertise, my area of expertise mm -hmm. and, and responsibilities, and, you know, it paid off down the road. Let's talk about the book in, in, sure. in, uh, in uh, the last few minutes we have with Bill Connolly, The Talent Masters. Uh, I've heard it said that when you are reading an autobiography about a business leader, it's the way they want to be remembered as opposed to the way it really was. Um, to some extent, uh, Talent Masters is a, a guide, a guidebook. Um, it is n not necessarily predictive, but it's a how-to. Yes. Um, explain yes. that. Yeah, I, I, I think you hit it. I think that this book is kind of a why-to and a how-to for any business leader at any level in the game to be able to improve their own personal game on identifying, uh, developing, and retaining top talent. So I think, you know, we, we, we surface a lot of different companies in here. So we don't have one formula. We, we have companies that we think are at the top of their game as far as talent mastery. We have other companies that are kind of works in progress, but are companies that are embracing the principles. And so what we want people to do is look at it as an individual uh, and customize it. Make it work, make it work for you. Uh, there's enough personal stories in there. Uh, and then we, the, the toolkit, the toolkit that's in the tail end of this book, in the back end of the book, uh, is really a how-to. And, and there's, uh, there's instructions, there's forms that people can take and use the following Monday. So. That's kind of what we really had in mind here. Kind of a rain, different companies that are in different stages of evolution on talent mastery, uh, and then and then putting the toolkit together to say, okay, you've told me all these stories. Now, what do I do with this? How do I how do I bring this together? And I think the toolkit does bring it together. And and one of the things that we uh, we talk about in kind of the the parting statement in in the book. Uh, is I draw an analogy to, uh, to, to golf, where I say uh, people can say, you know, I've read this. This makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, why wouldn't, why wouldn't everybody do this? And, and to me, it's simple. What, what we're saying in this book is very simple. But it's simple like a golf pro giving you a lesson, saying take a nice, smooth, rhythmic swing at the ball and follow through. Now, how many of us can do it? <laughs> so, I mean, it takes right. that mastery yep. of the game to right. develop that swing, and the same with, with talent mastery and leadership. So, so that's what we're, what we're trying to convey. Practice, practice, practice. Right, if you right, do it 10,000 right. times, right. Oh, there you for go. the 10,000 hours that would do it. of talent mastery, uh, Bill Connolly, uh, in, 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 in very real sense, uh, a talent master. Uh, and if you are a smart leader, uh, Bill is suggesting that you put your people before numbers. It's worked for him, and it will work for you. Bill, thanks very much Great, for Paul. your time. Great being with you.